Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Let me say that. It is a Friday, August 2nd as we speak. Of course, you can listen to this anytime in the universe because it is uh, a podcast on the internet. And... Um, Man, as soon as uh, I knew this was debate week, we had we've been talking a lot about the, uh, the Democratic debates uh, that t- took place. What was it, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday? I said I got to get my uh, crew together of uh, obsessive followers of politics, smart, opinionated people, and uh, so it is my dream team here. I have in the studio. Uh, and uh, we're going to be talking about the debates. We're going to talk about the upcoming election. We're going to be talking about um, how Democrats, what Democrats should do to defeat, to defeat one, Donald John Trump. So I'm going to allow each one of my uh, guests to introduce him or herself, starting with this dream teamer right over here. Uh, hi, can you hear me okay? So, Samina Mustafa, uh, I ran for Congress as a Justice Democrat in the 5th Congressional District in 2018. Um, and I've been on the show many times, a uh, big fan of Ben. Uh, we used to be on a radio station together, but that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot the name of that station. Uh, WC later. Anyway, go ahead. My name is David Seaton. I'm the co-host with my friend here, Atiba Buchanan, on Humanity and the Headlines, a, po- a podcast we've been running now for about what, Four over, years almost. Over, yeah, I was about to say over three years. Unapologetic, unapologetically progressive. I, I'm center left, so I'm sure we're going to have an interesting conversation because he and I always get into it. So I have a feeling you and I are going to get into yeah, it. Yeah, I, I have a feeling too. Uh, and finally... I'm Atiba Buchanan, the host and creator of Humanity in the Headlines, a radio show, which is a podcast that airs Saturday on intellectualradio.com. And uh, I'm definitely a bleeding heart liberal. I wear it as a badge of honor. Uh, if you call me that, I'm probably going to give you a big hug. <laughs> okay, very good. I can always use a hug. All right, uh, let's start uh, with uh, you, Samina, and uh, just sort of like a general thought. Uh, I, I know you watch both debates, just a general thought about what went down was sort of like a main idea or thought that you took away from these debates? So night one was everyone versus Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Night two was piling on Biden and Gumla. Really, that's, if I had to summarize two nights, that's what it felt like. I would definitely agree. I, I, I have to say, though, Bernie's time has passed. Time for him to hang up his cleats and, and get out of there. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I like her. She's very cerebral and esoteric and, and, and very methodical in how she lays everything out. However, too idyllic. It's not going to happen in 2020. We need to concentrate our efforts on where we're going to get a highest return on our investment, and that's going to be the two people you mentioned on night two, Biden and uh, Harris. Uh, you're asking for my summation of the yeah. okay great so uh, the first night as you so eloquently stated definitely was about um, uh, the, the 
the progressive wing of the party swatting away their critics, as CNN put it, uh, which I think they did a wonderful job doing, by the way. Uh, I, I'm immediately thinking of the moment with Elizabeth Warren saying, you know, I just can't understand the purpose of bothering to run for president only to talk about what you can't do and what you're not going to fight for. And I'm paraphrasing, but I thought that was just an awesome moment. And I think that was that encapsulated really the movement and where the, the Democratic Party needs to be, um, the party of big ideas. So I really support her in that in that in that passionate moment. Uh, night two, um, definitely, you know, they had to go ahead and try and, and take out uh, the big heavy hitters. But I don't think anyone made any. I think there were a couple of people that that made some great points. But I, I, in the long term, I don't think it's going to matter. We, we saw evidence of that. Joe, Joe Biden did not do well in the first debate. And his numbers ultimately, given time, went up. So, yeah, uh, Joe Biden, you said, yeah. Yeah, Biden. Okay. All right. Now, uh, before we, uh, I have to zero in on something that David said, uh, get you to clarify exactly what you mean. And then I asked Samina what she thinks about uh, what your what your clarification. You said, and um, uh, Bernie's time has passed. When you said that, uh, Dr. D over there started weeping. Uh, he's a Bernie bro from way back when. Uh, and uh, so what do you mean by Bernie's time has passed? In today's political climate, we have to balance what we the ideal the what's realistic and with our idealism. If if the Democratic Party had a strategy to put a Bernie or an Elizabeth into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and they also had a a, a tangential strategy to get 60 plus. Democratic senators in the in the Senate, so you don't have to worry about the filibuster and maintain the uh, you know their majorities in the House. Go for it. But we've seen Donald Trump. Donald Trump has the most sycophantic followers in Congress, and he hasn't been able to implement everything that he's want to, wanted to implement because he hasn't had 100 uh, 100% support from his caucus and everything. So I, I just think it's unrealistic for us to hang our hopes on trying to put someone who's who's so idyllic and knowing full well that they're not going to have the supporting cast in the Congress to implement what they want. And that's not even mentioning how Trump has packed the Supreme Court. Even if we had 60, we could have 67 Democratic senators and 51% of the House and 1,600 and pass something and the Supreme Court would just overturn it and call it unconstitutional. So we've got to be pragmatic and we've got to be incremental at this time. The most important thing is getting Trump out of the White House. Samina, your response. So I... um I watched something, which I, I try to avoid these little segments on CNN where they talk to do a panel of voters. You've seen these, right? And they usually assemble a, a panel of Trump voters um, that usually you find out are like Republican operatives or something. Um, they talked to some folks who they did disclose had worked on campaigns, and these are voters in Detroit. And one voter in particular struck me, um, a young um, Latino man who, who actually was um, more in favor of, of Elizabeth Warren. And he just said, like, I'm worried that they're, we're going to nominate, that the Democrats are going to nominate a moderate that's not going to get the base excited. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why 2016 happened, why we lost. Uh, and I think one, uh, one of the reasons um, I think might have been mentioned by Cory Booker, which is voter suppression. I mean, we're, I mean, the debate took place in Michigan, right? It was the margin uh, that uh, Donald Trump won Michigan wasn't that great. 
in the 2018 midterms, uh, Michigan elected a Democratic governor. So there's a lot of things that could change in 2020, but it has to do with what does what is the Democratic National Committee? What are they going to do? What are they? How are they going to invest? And how are they going to um, sort of pick a winner? I can say already just the way that they've handled these debates and the setup doesn't give me a lot of confidence. Tom Perez being the head of the DNC doesn't give me a lot of confidence. One thing that we haven't even talked about, we've had two debates now, Mm -hmm. over four nights, Mm -hmm. two different networks. None of the moderators was, um, I feel feel like, like, there wasn't a single black woman moderating the debates. And I feel like, you know, if you understood your base, DNC, you would have insisted upon that. So I think what I actually am more concerned about is it doesn't matter who the nominee is. What is the party leadership? What does the party leadership think their base is? And are they doing what it takes to turn them out? Are they combating voter suppression? You know, groups like Black Voters Matter. A friend of mine runs a group called Spread the Vote, uh, which deals with voter ID and voter suppression. These are things that existed in 2016 that didn't happen in a previous, you know, in a modern presidential election post Voting Rights Act. So, I, I think ideologically. There's, there's, there's a debate to be had, literally. <laughs> I don't think that these debates helped us get clarity on ideology because there were more cage matches. But I, I, I would say that that's, I, I, I want to see a progressive candidate who's going to energize the base. Yeah, now, before I turn it over to you, to respond, I'm just going to say, listening to both of what you said, you're talking two different things. Uh, David was talking about what is pragmatically possible once uh, a Democrat has been victorious, presuming the Democrat is victorious. So you're saying that the programs espoused by Bernie Sanders to have no chance of passing, so let's not even entertain him to begin with. You're talking, uh, Samina, about what has to be done right now to uh, see that a Democrat is elected. Those are two separate things. Uh, you got to, before you could say that he's not, Bernie Sanders' programs are not going to pass you have to get a bernie sanders elected do you, do you understand what i'm saying atiba what's your thoughts on this okay so david put a lot of meat on the bone uh very well said uh, it, I, and i and i can appreciate where he's coming from there does need to be a 50 state strategy um beyond the white house because you know if again if 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 we are if we don't have the senate or we don't have again 60 votes in the senate then what's really going to happen uh to to his point so that's that's a fair point i also share your concern about tom perez and the dnc um i'm I'm already having shades of memories of 2016. i remember you know when when they called california for hillary really early um and just as a bernie bro how betrayed I felt in that moment, because um, that's that's essentially the point that they got their nominee, and I am hoping that we don't go through what we what we're going through now just to get to the point, you know, roughly a year from now when 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 they are just determined to go ahead and get their nominee and come hell or high water put in the person that they want to put in, uh, like they did in 2016. So right now, though, to be honest with you. When you talk about the debates not being helpful, it doesn't really matter, in my opinion, because nobody's going to remember. Right. We're so far away. Most, most, most of Democratic voters aren't paying attention. They say as much. It's too many people. And that's fair. 
I mean, I'm a political junkie, and it's uh, it's overwhelming for me. I can't imagine <laughs> the average Joe trying to take in policy notes from 20 different people. Yeah. So as as we begin to thin out the field, uh, again, most of the th- you know Democrats aren't hurting each other because nobody's going to remember this a year from now anyway. I, I I have to comment on both of those. Number one, you, you made an interesting point about voter suppression, but Barack Obama won in 2000. Uh, 12? 2008 and 2012, and there were African Americans all over the country that were saying their votes were, were suppressed. So I don't think that's an anomaly specific to 2016. I, I just I, you, when you say that, I just wanted to I just wanted to say that. But more importantly, your point that you made about people not paying attention to the debates is part and parcel of why there's a cage match. The 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 dumbing down of 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 the average of the average person, the average American citizen out there, the person who's at the 50 percentile is an idiot. So everybody who's dumber than that person <laughs> is not even as smart as that person. So, I mean, and that's and that's just that's just yeah. the truth. I mean, you 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 know you watch these. I mean, people don't even take civics. They don't understand. You got Donald Trump up there saying that he has Article Two powers to do whatever he wants. Yeah. The Constitution says he can do whatever he wants, and his sycophantic, yeah. lemming supporters just clap and say, you know, think about what the three phrases that you will always remember about the Trump. Trump running for president are lock her up, build the wall, send them back, or yeah. whatever they were saying about the, the That's squad. That's the latest one, yeah. That's the latest one. The reason why those things stick with his pe- with the, with his followers is because it's simple and and it's dumbed down and it's easy to remember. And unfortunately, until we until we address the dumbing down of America, debates are always going to be cage matches. People are not going to be able to intellectually sift through multiple candidates so they can figure out who they're most aligned with and who they should vote for. If I could just, before, I'm sorry, one second, I promise you. Just one thing, a point of correction. When Barack Obama won in 2008 and, and, and in 2012, voter suppression was not what it is today. It, not nearly, because the Voting Rights Act wasn't gutted until 13. So up until that point, when whenever they wanted to do redistricting, redistricting, excuse me, I can't even talk today, they had to go through uh, the federal government. And if it looked wrong, they couldn't do it. And then once the Voting Rights Act got gutted, then, they, then Republicans were free to do whatever they wanted to do with gerrymandering. So it, it, it was definitely a, a much bigger thing in the 16 election than it had been in prior elections. And, and Atiba, I was going to say, really kind of uh, jump on that point, which is the 2013 Shelby versus Holder Supreme Court decision also opened the floodgates on voter ID laws. So you saw them in states like Wisconsin, Georgia, et cetera. And so like that, that was a, a, those were directly correlated. And this was the first president, presidential election we saw that. Um, but I mean, it, going back to um, <laughs> kind of the function of the debates and are people paying attention? Mm-hmm. And I feel like you and I might have talked about this, Ben, offline, which is, are these, are, is this field kind of like what we went through in Chicago with our mayoral field, where there were so many candidates and people were so overwhelmed. And, and, and you know, in our case, of course, the elections are held in the middle of winter where nobody is going to want to knock on uh, somebody's door or open the door or any of that stuff. So we've got a you know, built-in voter suppression right there. Um, and, and I think that that does overwhelm people. But I will say, even though it is a cage match, and, and I think these were even, the CNN debates were even worse than MSNBC, 
if you really look, <laughs> if you if you peel away the yeah. personalities, and if you think about the ideas that are being really talked about, a lot of the agenda that's being debated, the policy that's being debated, really is springing a lot from Bernie Sanders. So even though it's you know twenty some odd people. It's really kind of one platform that's being debated. Absolutely. And and I'm, I'm, I have a confession time here. I must admit something here. Um, I found the last debate uh, entertaining. And so uh, there's a difference between entertainment and enlightenment. Uh, there's a difference, obviously, between uh, great one-liners and lucid thought. So there wasn't a lot of lucid thought, but there were some one-liners. Uh, but Samina, yes, you're absolutely right. What the, those uh, questioners in the CNN debate did was take Bernie's platform as a standard and then say to the Democrats, how can you sell this to America? And they were buying into sort of the, the Trump notion that America will revolt against a, a left of center uh, platform, particularly uh, like healthcare. You know what I mean? How can you sell this? How can you get people to give up their private insurance? David Seaton, they asked it that way. You know, like how can you, in other words, this, the underlying assumption of this debate, uh, the last round was that you guys are on a different planet than, uh, the rest of America. How can you convince the rest of America to join you? I personally, think that that's a losing bag for the Democrats right off the bat, because I don't think they're on the other side of America on these issues. David Seaton, I can see you're already revved up to disagree with me. Only on uh, only on the, the general way that the left, America generally, but the left specifically attacks problems. Too often, we address the effect and not the cause. When Bernie Sanders says, we're going to create this national, we're going to create Medicare for all, we're going to put 320 million people into a, into a giant group, and it's going to drive down costs for each individual, he is correct. That is, that is print, that's how insurance works. Insurance works by the law of large numbers. The more people you pool together, the lower the cost is for each individual in that pool. That said, the, the driver of, of health care costs is not insurance. It's the, it's the cost of the medication. It's the cost of the surgeries. It's when you go and stay in a hospital and they charge you $20 for a two-cent aspirin. If we want to address health care, we need to address the drivers of the cost of health care going up. Not not trying to create this pool of people to try and make it all affordable because you could create a pool of 320 million people and if over the next 10 years the price of insurance the price of medical care goes up to another 12% average per year it's still going to be unaffordable a decade from now so we need to address the cause and not the effect I think this is a both and conversation um, at, from the Physicians for National Health Program, which has been a single payer advocate for, for decades. Uh, they did a study and 31% of healthcare costs are administrative, 31%. And so that, so we have to do both. We have to um, have a way to negotiate with providers 
So hospitals and, and other and other providers and drug companies. Um, when I was on uh, Ben's show last month, I was actually part of a group that went and challenged the American Medical Association, which has historically been on the wrong side of Medicare, Social Security, you name it. Um, they are always attacking these things as socialized medicine and have been on this have been working with drug companies, insurance companies, uh, the American Hospital Association, um, and a number of other groups to. Uh, to fight Medicare for all because they, again, perceive it as like a challenge to their ability to make gobs of money. 45,000 people die every year um, due to lack of insurance. Um, there's anywhere from 150 to 180 million people on an employer-based insurance plan. People don't love their insurance company. They might love their doctor, but I would, and I don't have the numbers, but I, I really think people are, don't, uh, there's some folks who just don't have a physician, or the reality is, and this came up somewhat in the debate, when you lose a job, you have to pay COBRA. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, it, I mean, if you've ever had to pay COBRA, which I have, <laughs> that is, that, that is not, uh, that is not even, that, that's not really an option yeah. for some folks. I mean, I've, I've actually gone without insurance because I couldn't afford COBRA. So I think, I think what the mistake um, that actually, unfortunately, is true of all the Democratic candidates, they're not messaging it correctly. Yes. They're not making it simple. Agreed. And it's it's too complicated. I mean, that's, I think, a failure of politics in general. When you're talking to people, and it's not has nothing to do with their education or how smart they are, you need to make it accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm. The simplest way to explain Medicare for all is you are going to have health care and your costs are going to go down. That is literally the simplest way to say it. Well, that, and to his credit, I think that's what Bernie's doing, right, Atiba? I mean, that's what his message is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, framing is everything. And unfortunately, too many times we allow the Republicans to control the framing and to control the narrative. I think last time I was here, I said it would be great if we could take some of this DNC money and just all over the country, on billboards all over the country, just write, health care is a, is a human right. That's it, because that's that's the once you get to that starting point, then we can talk about Medicare for all. But the reason we can't even begin to talk about Medicare for all, and we and to David's point, we have to do these incremental changes, is because Republicans have frame have been successful in framing health care as personal choice. Well, I made all the right decisions in my life. Why do I have to pay more because this schmuck decided? No, it has nothing to do with that. Yeah. Healthcare is a right. And once and, and, and Bernie and Elizabeth are the only people I've seen articulate that full-throatedly. And once we, once we get that simple message to be accepted by a majority of American people, then we can get into more, to, into more complex messaging. But the first thing we have to be able to agree upon is that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. And we can't even do that. That said, I will agree with the Democratic the, 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 the Democratic Party has historically been horrible at messaging. If they just went out on the if they if someone just went out on the debate stage and said, when you work at a small company, your health insurance is is more expensive because you're working at a small company. When you go to a bigger company, the cost of your insurance goes down because you're in a bigger company with more people. Now imagine we put 320 million people into one group. 
What would that do to the average cost for each individual? If they explained it like that, they would get the buy-in. They'd be able to. They'd be able to neutralize the what the attacks from but, the right. But the but the Democrats are up here trying to be all philosophical, philosophical, and all and, and and nobody cares about all that. Just that's why the Republicans keep winning because they boil down the message to something very simple, easy to remember. They repeat it all the time, and that's why people follow them. Yeah, and then also just, I mean, I agree with Atiba. I think the healthcare is a human right is a really powerful, simple hashtag phrase. But it really works for the base. It doesn't work for the independents. And so, um, to David's point, I think what uh, needs to be communicated is healthcare is a human right to the base. You will save money on your health care to everybody else. Yeah. It, it can't be that simple. Now, going back to the debates, when... I, don't, I, I feel like Jake Tapper dominated. <laughs> the guy is so obnoxious. Um, I just, I, I'm not a fan. Not a fan. Feel free to speak your not, mind. Not a fan of Jake Tapper. I, I felt like every single um, question over the two nights was, you know, I have, it's almost like they created a diagram and said, who can we pit against who, the yeah. other person? And it, I felt like it was WWE, and I'm not a wrestling fan, yeah, but so I'm like, it, was. it felt very like, okay, now now we're going to do this matchup, um, like on night two, when, you know, they asked Harris a question, and then Gabbard was teed up to come after yeah. her, and I'm just like, oh my God, they, that was coordinated. That no. had to have been. Well, yeah, that was part of the entertainment value of it, uh, and it was... Uh, it was very WWE, uh, and so it would be like they. It would be like they did this. Uh, Samina, I'm not saying anything, but Atiba was talking about you <laughs> in the washroom, and you should have heard some of the things he said about you. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, huh? again, we have to be we have to be honest though. When you have when you have a stage and you have ten people up there that are all running for the same job. The only way you're going to get the the viewer to get any information that's relevant is if you contrast the 10 people up there. If every time you ask a question, all 10 people give the same response I and agree. they all agree, that's coordinated. I, but if, but you have to contrast, if, if all four of us were sitting here all saying the same thing and the whole, and the whole show was, well, you know what, I agree. Yeah, I, yeah, that's right. Great point. Yeah. People would turn off. They'd be like, what, I, why, am I, why am I listening to this? Well, I, I, listen. It, it's entertainment at this stage. And, well, it's probably about entertainment at every stage, the way politics is done in this country. Uh, and so they went with that WWE thing. And, uh, oh, boy, Tapper, his job was to be like the troublemaker. Uh, but listen, it's really hard to communicate a one point uh, that the Democratic Party has on health care when you have contrasting voices on stage. And so you had, oh, boy, I forget his name, that... Uh, de uh, Congressman from Maryland, Delaney, Delaney. Yeah, I, who's like being a Republican. And so the Democrat, like Bernie was trying to articulate the Atiba uh, view on health care or the Samina view on health care. And uh, Delaney would be saying, that's ridiculous. You're going to take away their private health insurance. And then Tim Ryan would be saying, I'm standing up for all the union people who've negotiated those contracts that got health care. And like, are you kidding me? You're going to invoke labor as a reason why you're against national health care. Labor's for national. So it's really hard, Samina, to 
to articulate with one point of view when the Democratic Party doesn't speak with one point of view on this very important issue. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think we were going to get um, sort of everyone's reaching, you know, singing from the same hymnal or whatever the phrase is. Um, but I, and on specifically on health care, what is interesting to me is that there's some history of some of the folks, you know, whether it's um, Senators Booker and Harris, Congressman Ryan and, and Gabbard, and all of them were co-sponsors of Bernie's bill. And now they're sort of like drifting away from it and developing their own plans because they have to distinguish themselves or they don't have to. I mean, because Warren has said, Warren, for some uh, Bernie acolytes, she hasn't been clear enough on how pro-Medicare for all is. She is. But then in the last debate, she said, I'm with Bernie on this one. So she's affirmed her support. But again, I think there's enough, there's enough interest, support for this, um, this plan that the sort of the powers that be sense that, and so they have to tear it down. I mean, I remember actually watching the first debate, and I think one of the first commercials was America's biopharmaceutical company. This was adver- yes. was one of the advertisers. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear: where that where is CNN getting the money? That's what Bernie pointed out on at the on his at his moment. He he pointed it out. Now, I'm going to throw the McDumkey theory at you guys. McDumkey's a friend of mine. He's a he's a journalist here in the city of Chicago. Came on this show. And he got real. He 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 took strong issue with me because I said that the Democrats uh, should run on a platform of uh, sort of Medicare for all, if you will. And McDumkey said, "You will lose the election because uh, people don't want to give up their private health care plans." And so he he was sort of articulating before the Delaney point of view before Delaney articulated. So I, I always tell Mick that Delaney stole his ideas. But uh, the attitude is that people it has to be uh, it, it it has to be expand, not replace. So you have to you have to convince people that you're not going to take something away from them, and you have to keep them reassured. Otherwise. They'll be so frightened they'll run and vote for Donald Trump. Do you three agree, starting with you, Atiba, that McDumpkey is correct and that it would, it's suicide for the Democrats to talk about taking away people's private health insurance? No, I, I don't agree with them at all. Um, the only reason it, it could be suicide or have that effect is because of poor messaging, but not on the substance of it. So as we discussed a moment ago, if, if the messaging is proper and the benefits are explained in a proper way by a candidate who can inspire, and we haven't found that person yet, but it's getting there, but it has to be the right candidate. It's, it, Barack Obama would have no problem in, in 2016 or 2020 being that type of person, but we haven't found that type of candidate yet. We, I found, we found people we like, but we haven't found anyone that inspires us. But by, by all means, I don't agree with that at all. I think, I think, again, the benefits, as to David's point, need to be explained more clearly, more succinctly, and more simply. And I think if you can do that, um, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case at all. Because at the end of the day, we cannot, we cannot let the um, American public forget at large that for two years, Donald Trump had the White House, he had the Senate, and he had the House. And they could not pass a health care bill. And to this day, three years into his presidency, they still have, there is no Republican health care plan. They have no plan. There is none. Yeah. So what are we comparing it to? Yeah, there is no plan. Uh, Samina, what's your response to the McDumkey theory? Well, so um, 
<laughs> I'm going to borrow a line for from uh, Father Bernie. I think he's wrong. No, and I and and I largely I, I agree with Atiba's point. The Republicans have been trying to take health care away, and Delaney even used, I think, the phrasing "repeal and replace," so, and and which really, I just my jaw dropped. And I think Delaney is the Republican light on stage for sure, um, and and that is what folks need to remind. No, it's not your. We are not going to take away something. We're going to give you something, yeah. and it, it's it's. Again, it really doesn't have to be that complicated, and that's the challenge for the eventual nominee. Make it simple and and drive that point over and over and over and well, over again. And you have to speak to people where they are, because yeah. right. once again, if, if this was an economy of 30, 40 years ago where unions were just prevalent, um, you could you somebody could more strongly make that point about people not wanting to give up their private insurance, but people don't work jobs twenty and thirty and forty years anymore. So if if you're losing your insurance the moment you transition to a job, and most Americans are working two and three jobs just to make ends meet, talk to all these Uber drivers. What insurance do they have? Mm-hmm. What insurance do Lyft drivers have? So many people work these ten ninety nine jobs that don't have insurance at all. Well, this is Samina's point. She's been making it many times. I've been hearing it many times. And that is, if you want to win this election, you got to get those Uber drivers registered and you got to get them to vote. Because if you're going to run as a progressive champion of healthcare for all, you're sticking your neck out for people who may not vote. And this was the Demo- this is the Rahm Emanuel theory, the Bill Clinton oh. theory, and the Democratic <laughs> politics is that you can't rely on Uber drivers to get out and vote. So you got to worry about swing voters in some suburban district, and in which case you dilute your message, you cut back on your values, you throw them away uh, because you're just going to lose if you're depending on Uber drivers. Am I correct? Isn't that their theory? I mean, yes. And 30 million people aren't insured. Over 40 million are underinsured. And I think I saw a statistic of something like over 100 million folks are healthcare insecure financially. So they, they wouldn't be able to uh, weather a healthcare emergency. This is a pocketbook issue, as you like to say. Yeah. And this is, if you focus, how, what drew people to the polls during the midterms? Healthcare. healthcare. Once again, I hate to be the contrarian. Yeah, well, go for it. I hate to be the contrarian. Go for it, David. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. It's like Jake Tapper. I hate it. I wish it. I wish I wasn't that guy. But there's a. But there's a. But there's a contiguous theme going around. Go ahead. Atiba mentioned the 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 independent contractor, the the um, the Lyft driver or the Uber driver yeah. can't afford insurance. You mentioned when you had to t- you had to uh, take Cobra. You had to pay and couldn't afford it. We keep talking about the expense of health care, but what we're not talking about is elevating people economically so that the cost of health care bec- goes into the rearview mirror. The reason why we have so much resistance to creating this this behemoth of a Medicare for all is for two reasons. Number one, there are there's a huge segment of Americans out there who don't believe that health care is a human right. Right. They don't want you taking two more percent out of their check to pay for somebody else who doesn't work. 
and they don't and and I know people who have said that and they couldn't afford health insurance and they didn't but still didn't believe it was a human right. So we've got that issue. The only way we are going to ameliorate as a society and look at look at the cost of health care as being small as we've got to grow people's pocketbooks. If, imagine if when if when Barack Obama came in on the wave of winning by 10 million votes, beating uh, uh, John McCain, mm-hmm. had the House, had the Senate, and instead of him doing Obamacare first, he took that same $2.5 trillion, created a, 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 a infrastructure program, and went and fixed every bridge, every, every tunnel, every water system. He put that $2.5 trillion out there into an infrastructure program. Now people are working. Now when people are going to work, the guy who's got the food truck, he's got some place to go for people to buy his food because they've got money to spend. There's all this money in the economy, and now people are making more money. Now when you go to them and you said, hey, that first idea worked out really well, right? Now all I want is an additional 2 2.5% out of your check so we can get everybody insured. Mm-hmm. All we right. keep going after the insurance first, and you can't go after people who are, like you just said, who are insurance insecure or can't afford insurance. You can't go to a population, 65% of which doesn't have $400 in the bank to cover a personal All emergency, right, and ask them to pay for somebody else's health care. Uh, okay, I'm going to somebody else's health First of all, when you pay for health care, you're paying for everybody's health I'm talking about the way the person, the, the, average Ameri- the average white male American, when you talk about Medicare for all they're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about that other that guy down the street who's going to get something for free off of my back. And I'm going to say two. Th- but he gets it anyway. Two responses to that. Number one, uh, it, it, when you speak about average white Americans and the Democratic primary of 2016, most of them voted for Bernie Sanders, not Hillary Clinton. That's number not one. True. Young D, isn't that true? Wait, isn't That's that true? Isn't that Samina? No, no. Bernie Sanders won the caucuses. Hillary Clinton got the most votes in the primaries. Yeah, but Hillary Clinton was victorious in 2016 largely because she won the the majority, the vast majority of the black vote. If you break down the Democratic primary vote of 2016, uh, Bernie Sanders, looks state in Michigan, Wisconsin, he won the, the, the white vote, that white male vote, and that's the argument the Bernie bros have been giving me for four years they go we can get those trump voters because they will vote for us but the other point you made i i you're never gonna get a voter to vote democrat who believes that he it's he does not want to give up more money from his paycheck to go to the common good those people have, who, in my humble opinion, is a demented view of the world. I have, no, I'm not saying I'm never going to vote. I Democratic. agree with you, and I don't, and I don't agree with that sentiment. I'm simply saying that there's a large enough group of people out there who don't believe healthcare is a human right, and they're they don't want don't take any money out of my pocket to go take care of the welfare mom or the illegal immigrant or whatever they have in their head to justify their beliefs. That's how that's how Donald Trump won. He he capitalized on people's fears and their hatred of the other, and as long as that's there, that's going to keep people from otherwise looking out for what's in their own economic best interest. Let me add a reason. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Let me just add a reason we don't have Medicare for All right now, because you mentioned a great reason, but the biggest reason we don't is because as Americans, um, we're stupid. And what I mean by that is... <laughs> Sounds like me talking about Chicago voters. No, no, no. <laughs> what I mean by that is the, we keep talking about Medicare for All as if it's theoretical, It's in practice in every other industrialized country in the world. 
except here. But because most Americans don't know, they don't even know anything about America, let alone know anything about Canada, let alone know anything about UK, let alone know anything about Germany. So because we are so uneducated and because our our worldview, we think America is the world. I, I remember this. When I was about 16 years old, there was a, there was a, a, a group called uh, Soul to Soul. They were, a, they were an RB group from the UK. They were a band, and they had a, a big hit. And I remember them speaking to the guy in the band on TV. It was like, I forget what, what show it was. And I think it was like during a point where the band's popularity here was fading away. Yeah. And they asked him about that, and he said, what Americans f- tend to forget is that America is not the world. And that's what we, that's to to suit to too many Americans. America is the world. So because we don't know that this already works right above the border, yeah. Then then we're, to, to us this is some big grand socialist conspiracy. Yeah. Because we don't know anything. <laughs> it's scary to a lot of people. I I think to go back to something you said earlier, Atiba, which is that the Republicans have been spending a long time and have perfected their messaging and made this seem scary and the boogeyman, right? Bernie Sanders is the boogeyman who's going to um, tax you uh, to the hilt and you're not gonna get anything. But again, this what 2020 is about is about exciting the base and expanding it a little bit. Because let's be clear, that swing vote is like this. Yeah. And I'm just making like the, uh, an infinitesimally small slice. Yeah. Um, it's not big. That's, I think, the, 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 the Rahm Emanuel philosophy of the world. He went on something, I don't know what it was, and he said something like, the Democrats can't talk about, uh, they got to talk about the 30-some-odd million who don't have health care and not about giving um, health care to undocumented immigrants. It's like, Go away, Rahm Emanuel. You didn't even want Obama to do Obamacare. Like, you are the worst. And you know where I saw that? You know who was excited that he said that? A a Twitter account called the Trump War Room. (laughs) He is making Trump's case for him. Rahm Emanuel is probably the best uh, messenger right now for Trump's message. He is essentially attacking... Talk about it, like, and Eric Holder came after the Democrats for going after Obama. Here's the thing: Trump is going to Trump is going to come after um, the Obama legacy. He's going to do all these things. He's going to come after whoever the the nominee is. The most important thing for the nominee to do is to have a good campaign framework, a good field organization to reach voters directly. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that, which we didn't have, we in really didn't have in 2016. I mean, you don't have to, uh, people in Wisconsin, Michigan, you name it, said we didn't have what we needed. Yeah. And we didn't, and there wasn't, the, the, the money wasn't invested. Yes, did, was there some other uh, factors that we haven't fully investigated? Yes, but there were some things that were pretty clearly, you know, voter suppression, lack of field. So if you, it doesn't matter sometimes what your message is if you're not reaching those voters. And Trump voters were energized in 2016. There was something I just shared the other day where basically said, if the Democrats don't energize their base, the Trump voters are going to be energized even though they're the minority. I have to say really quickly because uh, you, made the, you made the statement and you made the statement about uh, uh, other other industrialized countries having uh, health care. But again, this is one of those things that makes people angry. 
none of us could go to could fly, could go to Canada today and and walk into a hospital and get a surgery. They'd say, "Are you a Canadian citizen?" No, you're not. Then you, then you don't you don't participate in the Canadian healthcare plan. We couldn't do that in the UK. We couldn't Actually, do I'm that not in sure the That's correct. I, don't, I, no, I you, think that's incorrect. No, if you go to Canada and you get hurt, you, yeah. they will admit you into an emergency okay, room. Okay, okay, but you okay, can't yeah. go. I can't drive. I can't drive across the the, the United oh, States Canadian border and walk into a hospital and say, "Yeah, I'd like to schedule my hip surgery." My point is, is that the when the Democratic Party gets so idealistic that we are that they are saying out of their mouths out loud that they want to give free health insurance to undocumented immigrants. Mm. That is crazy. Health care to undocumented. We, we do that now. No, anybody who walks into an emergency room, yes. you, they, the emergency room will take care of that person. That's right. different from saying you're going to give an undocumented immigrant the same health care as a U.S. citizen. That's going too far. The Democratic Party needs to hone their mess. They, they, the, 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 why are you, why are you going after? Why are you trying to get illegal, undocumented immigrants to like you? They can't vote for you. I, I, I understand the point Take, you're making. Get, as a political, cover all the Americans. I understand the point That's you're all. making as a political strategy, but I have to say this: I, I when I heard that the Republicans throw that out, I'm like, look, if we have Medicare for all in this country as a universal right across the board, which we pay for out of our tax dollars, the way we pay for the roads to be paved, or the way we pay for the roads to be patrolled by police. If that's something we have as a universal right, and someone sneaks into this country and breaks his arm, guess what? We're, that person's getting health care, because that's our system. It's like, we're not going to keep people off the roads from driving if they're... It, it, you didn't contribute to the paying of this road so you don't get to drive on this road so if we come up with medicare that's why i just thought it was a ridiculous critique to make to make such a big deal about that to even ask the question put your hands in the air everybody if you agree that illegal uh citizens in this country should get health care i'm like well they're gonna get it if we have medicare for all because guess what guys medicare for all means medicare for all but there's a difference between you walking down the street, you get hit by a car and an ambulance comes and picks you up and takes you to the emergency room and they patch you up and they send you on your way. There's a difference between that and you making an appointment for a doctor's office to go get an MRI or get a CAT scan or whatever. And you say, yeah, I don't have any money, but you guys got to give it to me. And no, I'm not a citizen. I haven't paid any taxes. I don't work. I, I, I work under the table, blah, 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 blah. I'm just saying that's how, that's how the right sees it. And, and it is it is not morally defensible for the Democratic Party to us to say that they want to cover undocumented immigrants when we haven't even covered 100 percent right. of Americans. That. OK, so a couple of things are happening. That was a everyone's raising their hands. That question being asked by MSNBC was a layup for a GOP talking point. Yes. They want, and I think you said, said it, David, people don't want, you know, the, the sort of the a majority of white voters don't want to pay for other other people's problems. <laughs> and let's uh, let's let's be clear. A majority of white voters have not voted for the Democratic nominee since the Voting Rights Act. I say this on the show every, every single time, time some like way, <laughs> some way somehow I'm going to say it. So let's let's be clear who who our base is. So I mean on on that point but I, I'm going to disclose something. I, I used to work at a clinic. My mother was in public health for over 30 years. 
when you think about health care, it is different. It's different than roads. You know, measles doesn't care about your immigration status. Yeah. You will still get measles. It is an infectious disease. You know, we have, we're having measles outbreaks in New York. I mean, it is insane. And that those are those are some things that I think people just, you know, just take a step back and say, like, what is best for the welfare of the entire country so don't use the word welfare uh, <laughs> yeah you're you just lost i'm a queen and i'm gonna use the word welfare if i want to now, now let me say this one thing because uh, because atiba atiba and i have had this conversation scores of times I have said that the, that the person that we're talking about who doesn't want to pay for somebody else's health care, they think that they're being selfish. Go pay for your own health care. I say it's being selfish by helping that other person because if they have the measles and they're able to go to the doctor, they can get inoculated. You don't have to worry about getting on a plane and someone's got tuberculosis and they're coughing or you go to the mall. That's different from paying for and giving full health care to undocumented immigrants. That's different. Well, uh, there's undocumented immigrants, there's illegal immigrants, there's all, there's like people who live in this country for years and years and years who contributed to the economy, who uh, send their kids to school, who kids may be citizens. You know, there's been a vilification of immigrants and this, and again, guys, we're following Donald Trump's playbook. Right. This obsession we have with whether someone's Ill, illegal immigrant or an illegal resident, uh, that's Donald Trump's playbook. And Democrats, I don't think, should be following Donald Trump's playbook. Democrats could solve the immigration uh, problem tomorrow. Put intake centers at the border. Make sure that there's a there's a registry so that before you come into the border, you've already got a job lined up, or we'll find you a job because we know that there are jobs here that Americans don't want to do that you will do. Make sure that you have to come back and check in every 365 days. If you don't check in, you get deported. It's, it's, it's solved. You got all the all the labor you need. They're filling the jobs that Americans don't want. Charge them a surtax on their federal income taxes, so it'll it'll subsidize the system. And then you create a reporting, a self-reporting thing where they got to come back every whatever number of period to check in so before they can go back to their job. Problem solved. David Seaton for president. <laughs> uh, uh, D, we got some uh, clips we want to play and have the, our guest riff on them a little bit. Yeah, we'll pick one. Uh, all right. Uh, Samina, I'll allow you to pick. You've listened to the debates for the last two days. Uh, no, no. You, you pick from one of your two. Oh, you pick from one of your two buttons. The two buttons oh, that you have oh, on your desk. Yes, my girl, right here. Let's do Marianne Williamson. You got the 40 acres and a mule one by any chance? Uh, yeah, I believe I do. Here we okay. go. Many of your opponents support a commission to study the issue of reparations for slavery. But you are calling for up to $500 billion in financial assistance. What makes you qualified to determine how much is owed in reparations? Well, first of all, it's not $500 billion in financial assistance. It's $500 billion, 200 to $500 billion payment of a debt that is owed. That is what reparations is. We need some deep truth telling when it comes. We don't need another commission to look at evidence. I appreciate what uh, Congressman O'Rourke has said. It is time for us to simply realize that this country will not heal. All that a country is is a collection of people. People heal when there's some deep truth telling. 
We need to recognize that when it comes to the economic gap between blacks and whites in America, it does come from a great injustice that has never been dealt with. That great injustice has had to do with the fact that there was 250 years of slavery followed by another 100, 100 years of domestic terrorism. What makes me qualified to say 200 to 500 billion dollars? I'll tell you what makes me qualified. If you did the math of the 40 acres and a mule, given that there was four to five million slaves at the end of, of, of the Civil War, there were four to five, and they were all promised 40 acres and a mule for every family of four. If you did the math today, it would be trillions of dollars. And I believe that anything less than $100 billion is, is an insult. And I believe that 200 to 500 billion is, is politically feasible today because so many Americans realize there is an injustice that continues to form a toxicity underneath the surface, an emotional turbulence Ms. that Williamson, only reparations Thank will you be. very much. Senator Sanders. <laughs> All right, Ms. Williamson. All right, Atibu Buchanan, you just heard it. Uh, do you subscribe to the David Seaton notion that as soon as she said all that thing, Wisconsin and Michigan just went to Donald Trump? Possibly. Um, but that doesn't mean that she did that what she said wasn't necessary and appreciated and needed. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a political consequence and then there's a moral consequence. And this is one of those things that, you know, you need to, it's it's a tough call because I know how the majority of white Americans feel about that. I mean, the way we, the discussion we just had about health care. Reparations? Oh my <laughs> God. We all know what they're going to say. Yeah. I didn't have any slaves. Yeah. Why do I have to pay? Yeah. Which, which by that logic, by the way, all you have to do is continue an atrocity for a generation and then you're not culpable. Yeah. Because that was the prior generation that did that. So, again, uh, but what she did was brilliant in what she said, uh, in so much as making the acknowledgement that what she's basically saying is, we don't have enough money to pay them what we really owe them. Yeah. That's really what she said. We don't have enough money. But we can make this, you know, I, I, I'll settle it here for, you know, five cents on the dollar so that, you know, we, so that we can say we did something. Yeah. But that's essentially what she said. But, again, her framing was excellent. Uh, her delivery. Delivery was phenomenal and impassioned and authentic, and um, yeah, I think that that definitely needed to be said. And this and that is one of the great benefits of having these primaries is that you get moments like that that spur along further conversations. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, I think that the best thing we could do to improve race relations in this country is to offer up like a billion dollars of reparations to anybody who's black. Then all the white people in America goes, uh, "My great grandmother was a black person," and they'll be like. <laughs> Everybody want to be black. Right, right. So uh, it would be a great thing. Uh, David, uh, uh, your thoughts on when you hear that Marion Williamson thing? The easiest thing to do in the world is to promise something that you'll never have to deliver because you'll never get the job <laughs> to, to fulfill what yeah. you promised. Yeah. So that's how I feel okay. about what she, that's how I yeah. feel about what she said. Yeah. Uh, Reparations as a as a mechanism for to for the African American community in terms of just writing a check is based on the data would not be a would not be an, a a wise investment of money uh, in in the African American community dollar a dollar stays in the African American community uh, an average of one it changes hands one time 
You give, you put the hands, you put that money in the hands of an African American, it immediately leaves the community. And every in the Asian community, it switches hands six times. In the Jewish community, it switches hands uh, seven or eight times. In Italian community, you know, five or six times. Uh, so writing a check. I think is the wrong thing to do. I think if there was a Marshall Plan that said every African American for the next generation gets to go to college for free, uh, you know, every African American uh, give every African American access to uh, X amount of money in the in the form of a loan of a business loan, and then multiple people can pool that money so that they can invest that money into larger ventures. I think doing things like that. But if you just if you just wrote a if you just Wrote a, wrote a bunch of checks into the African-American community, six months later, more than 50% would be in the same circumstances they were before they got the check. That's not a good reason not to do it. I'm sorry, go ahead. That's exactly the reason you don't want to do it. When reparations were given to Jews, nobody counted how many times it changed. Nobody counted that. They, they paid it because it was due. That's why you pay reparations, because it's due. I'm same sorry, thing with Japanese in this country. Yeah. Japanese Americans in this country were locked up during World War II. Right, other other races aren't even subjected to, to that type of evaluation. There's, well, there there weren't there weren't forty million uh, Japanese that got reparations. Well, it, it's it's it was only it was only four, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> wasn't it like four people who were like the who were still alive who were originally in no, the No, no, it was uh, are you kidding me? Uh, the reparations bill went through. Uh, I'm doing this off the top of my head. I'm saying the number of people who got paid. It was oh, like it was the way more than four. More, yeah, I mean, there's still uh, people alive, many people alive who were locked up in those camps. Right, and um, it, <laughs> there's so many things involved in this. We're, we're back to the immigration issue um, because I, I literally heard from a, a survivor in the internment camp at that rally I, I was at mm -hmm. uh, earlier last month. But the reparations discussion, I think, is an important one because I agree with Atiba. Like this is, and and I think Marianne Williamson did do a good job of of articulating it's a debt owed and it's not enough. And it's, I think, there's so much healing that needs to be done about this issue. But I think, on some level, to to David's point, when you were speaking, it made me think of the universal basic income argument, and that is, you know, the the plan that Andrew Yang. Uh, has been you know pushing this entire time, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's really his only every single <laughs> issue, a thousand dollar check a month, yeah. and so um, and I and it's I, I think it's interesting. Yeah. My only concern yeah. with and and I really I think reparations should be a separate conversation and and deserves uh, you know the attention and the resources, but I worry with uh, with plans that just give folks a check is that it's a layup to then cut all the other programs uh, like like healthcare, mm -hmm. like Social Security, like all these things. And then frankly, Andrew Yang has gone on, he went on this uh, a, a show called The Humanist Report, I don't think related to your all show, but um, and said that wasn't going to happen. But then he went on a conservative show, The Rubin Report, and essentially admitted that that's, that's the plan. So mm, I think there's a lot, uh, it's not even so much that Reparations isn't the right thing to do. It's what is the what is sort of the legislative and sort of uh, you know who's in the White House, who's going to make those decisions uh, and and decide like oh well then if we're going to write this check are we going to cut this? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't move forward, but it just it made me think of that when when David was saying that because I, I worry how people are going to react and then say well we have to pull all this other stuff back. Um, it's not a reason to not do it. It's just something to to think about. 
Let me just add, Dave, I wasn't suggesting that the ideas you came up with weren't good because they were. I was only saying that those aren't reasons not to do it. Right. And I'm not, and I, and I, and I'm, I'm not having the, I'm having a, a, a conversation about what type of reparations sure. there should be. I'm not saying there shouldn't be any. And mm -hmm. I'm saying that there is a, that it would be disadvantageous. 95% of the people who win the lottery are broke two or three years, you know, after they win the lottery and they win sometimes 10, they're decamillionaires and centimillionaires and they get broke. And even in your, even in your illustration using Israel, Israel was not just given a bunch of money. They were given a piece of land carved out of the Middle East. They've been given military assistance and financial aid from the United States since the repatriation of Israel since 1968. There's, there's a whole, there's a whole web of of support that were that's being given to Israel they weren't just written they just weren't written a check and i'm saying that for african americans and all of the social ills that we that we suffer in this country and the and how we are how we are relegated as as a subservient or we're we're relegated as a lower class to keep 40 35 uh, what is it what's is it like 32 million african American, whatever the, to keep 30 million people in this country and write them a check when all they're going to do is spend the money right back to the people who gave them the check doesn't solve mm. anything oh my goodness when you said that i just had this flash which is completely uh, when you uh at the bowling alley on monday nights uh if, you, if you're successful and you win the pot and they give you 500 dollars, guess what people do with it they go buy liquor at the bar. They give it right back to the bowling. When you said that, I just thought of the bowling alley. Uh, Samino, you have a comment, and I'm going to ask Dennis to queue up another. Uh, if we can get Tulsi uh, going after Kamala, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, that's. I mean, I, I, look, I, I am. I really think it, I want to go back to what Atiba said earlier, which is we don't know this history. Um, you know, when Marianne Williamson said what she said, we were saying this earlier before we even got on the show, like who said 40 acres and a meal for the mm -hmm. first time in a debate? Who's been talking about this history? Most people don't know what redlining is. They don't really understand, uh, you know, voter suppression. They don't understand some of these that 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 the the New Deal, yeah. that FDR's New Deal excluded, um, you know, Mexican immigrants and African Americans. They, none of these sort of data points are are have been taught. So people sort of think like they believe the the Reagan talking points and. Anyone who didn't realize Reagan was a racist is wow. wow. God, I, I yeah. I, let me sell you a bridge because you were clueless. Wow. How clueless can you be? Yeah. But like that's the thing is like we've had decades of policies that are are racist because they were made by racists. Yeah. It's not complicated. You know what's weird? I mean, but you said that Reagan thing, guys. What Samina was alluding to is the story that broke this week where uh, there was a recording of Ronald Reagan, who was governor of the state of California, having a conversation in 1971 with Richard Milhouse Nixon, president of the United States. Uh, and Reagan went on this rant about uh, delegates, African delegates, the United Nations, who didn't vote the way he wanted to do in some initiative from the United Nations. And he called them monkeys. And Americans are like shocked. And, and I'm like, why? Why are you shocked? You know, Americans, and I'm speaking as a white person, we get exposed to so much racism all the time. Uh, take my word for it, guys. You probably don't get it. Okay? <laughs> you, the, the stuff I hear on a regular basis my whole life, 
from white people when black people aren't in the room. Right. Okay. And then you have this world. What do you say? You know, I'm not Gandhi. I'm going to tell you right now, most of the time I don't say anything because it's like, am I going to get into a fight with this guy? Do I care about the guy? Do I walk away from the guy? But for for white people to sit there and say, oh, my God, I am shocked that Ronald Reagan said this. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like, you know, who's never shocked about racism? Black, black people. people. <laughs> Yeah. We're never shocked about yeah, uh, about yeah. we. As a matter of fact, when we when we assume that we see it, that's then we're playing the race card, or you know whatever. But but David, let me ask you this: and has a white guy ever said to you, just like a matter of factly, as Ronald Reagan said that to Richard Nixon? I don't. Did you hear the tape? Yes, I did. Okay. Has a white guy ever said that to you, just as a matter of factly? Not since I joined the two hundred plus, uh, two hundred pound plus club. <laughs> when you were skinny, in the day. he was. I was, I was very was. thin back he in the day. Was. I was extremely thin, but no, not not as an adult, and not as an adult. What I, about I won't, you? I won't quant, I what won't about you, Atiba? I think uh, t- t- the short answer is no, um, but that's less the point because I think we we have to be careful about putting things into a box and then calling it racist. And what I mean by that is I'm more concerned about systemic racist policies that are worded beautifully than I am about somebody calling somebody a monkey. Um, It's terrible, but that alone isn't racism. You can, you can never utter a racist word and have the absolute most racist effect and intent anyone's ever had. So when people relegate racism to specific, like a lot of people defend Donald Trump because then they say he's not racist because he hasn't said the N word. They literally in their minds equiv- equivocate yet racist. <laughs> and well, we know he's got, they got the tapes on NBC when he said it on the apprentice. He's haven't released it, but not that it would matter if they did. But again, wait, they, time out. Hold it. Hold, you don't think it would matter? No, I'm not. Okay, no. Don't go back to the yeah. Trump voters who no. will vote for him. He, Absolutely not. You, Absolutely. Why would it? What about those swing if voters? Trump's, if Trump, <laughs> no. If Trump Five said. people in Ohio. If Trump said the N-word on a hot mic or, or he tweeted it, yeah. which he's going to do, I believe. It's before, coming. Before <laughs> but the day that he says the N-word on a hot mic or tweets it, his approval ratings with Republicans is going to go to 130%. Okay. Uh, all right. But all important question uh if when he's caught with that uh will kanye west still support him perhaps absolutely okay <laughs> like yeah. his supporters will still support yeah. and like we saw it happen after he after the rally right after the tweets yeah. after the tweets to um aoc and the squad mm-hmm. what did we see we saw the polling show his approval rating went up with yeah. republicans wow that's so deep that's what we saw that's true. Yeah. I mean, look, I uh, <laughs> I agree with David Atiba. I think the the racism is – there's actually a really a new book that's coming out. There's a guy, um, Dr. Ibram Kendi, who's great, but he, he sp- talks specifically about this. It's not so much the words. It's the, um, it's the effect. And I think the, the phrase that he – said recently which i thought was so perfect was everyone thinks like is against every form of racism except their own Mm. so you know reagan probably again never thought of himself as a racist but again where did he announce his campaign you know donald trump 
has never hasn't yet been caught on a mic that we've heard saying but every when did he first appear to the national press in the new york times was sued for housing discrimination i mean it's just again this goes back to the education piece do people understand what it means to be racist and what does that make what does that say about that and i'm not going to pick on you too much ben but frankly when when folks who you know are around you and say stuff and and you don't say that's racist it's not okay then it's kind of like nobody's telling them yeah. so no, there's nobody right. there's nobody to say that's wrong and i don't agree with you cuz i've actually had i've had, I had a conversation with a he's a masters he's a former colleague and he grew up on the south side went to I don't know, brother rice whatever you you name the school on the south side and he said to me, like, you know, Irish and Jewish, they pass money on to their, their next generation. You know, you know, black families don't do that. And I just looked at him like, and I just t- started talking about redlining. I just, I just broke it down to him. And, I, and he just had no idea. But I was like, I'm not going to walk away from this conversation and just be like, oh, that's him. He's in his 60s. It's too late for him. I said, no, I'm going to talk to you about his. He had no idea yeah. what I was talking about. No, I, I, I'll sit here and admit it. I've walked away from many a conversation. I'm not going to, oh, are you kidding me? I got a team in the room. Tiba, man, every time a guy says something racist, I stand up to him. No, and it goes beyond racism. If I could tell you how many guys have said nasty things in my presence about gays, good God, including a lot of black guys, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, about women. If I could, I, it just, and you're right, I am guilty, right? Because I don't confront absolutely everybody that says something. I more often than not just walk away. But, uh, but, and, I, and, I, and I know I speak for Atiba and I, uh, for, for Atiba and me when I say this. I don't care what you call me. You know, I, for, I forget the, I forget the, uh, the African-American philosopher. and uh, I think, I, I don't remember what he said. It's not what you call me, it's what I answer to. I don't care what you call me. And and you and you calling me a name or telling a, a joke, an off-color joke, no pun intended, or whatever, that doesn't that doesn't impact me. The racism that impacts me is like Atiba was saying a moment ago. When I go to apply for the job yeah. and I'm not given the job because uh, because I walk through the door and they see the color of my skin and they just make an assumption from the beginning of the interview, or when I go and apply for the loan and somebody denies the loan because regardless of my 700 FICO score. Or that I get denied the loan because they have the authority to not give me the loan, or when black, when African Americans go buy cars with the same credit score and the same income, and they're paying double the interest rates for the same car loans, or or the redlining where they where they don't where they're not able to accumulate the wealth to pass on uh, to their children. I have a I know I have a a, a very close a couple of several close. Caucasian women uh, friends who grew up in single female-headed households, they don't have a student loan. When they got married, their parents, you know, paid the, 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 mother, of the, uh, the mother of the bride paid for the wedding. When they bought their first house, both the parents of the groom and the bride gave them 10% down each. So when they bought their first home, they had a 20% down payment. So then five years or seven years later, when their kids turn three and four years old and they want to go buy a bigger house, they didn't have to save for it because they've already got the equity in the house to go ahead and buy the bigger house. Yeah. So when you contrast that against... African-Americans who have student loans, who are redlined, who are denied the jobs, who are denied the opportunities, who can't go borrow the money necessarily and go and go and open the business. And you got all these other all these other things that set you back. 
that's that's the racism that counts. And there's not generational wealth to pass on. D. All right, let's uh, let's kick kick up one last one. The, the uh, we talked to, we strayed a bit from the Democrat, but it's been an enlightening but, discussion. But this is it. Let's think about, we're talking about what's the Democratic base. Yes. That's really what we're tackling. What yeah. is the Democratic yes. base? Uh, all right. Do you have, uh, uh, which one did I want you to do? Tulsi uh, going after Kamala. All right. Let's listen to this. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator. All right, we'll start with you, Samina. Your, your thoughts on this. Uh, I, like I said earlier, I thought this was uh, coordinated. Um, it, for months now, there have been stories about Kamala's pros- prosecutorial history. And even we, we had to deal with it here in Chicago. Is progressive prosecutor an oxymoron? Is that possible? Um, when we were you know, uh, talking about Lori Lightfoot. So um, Kamala Harris's specific record is going to be picked apart. And I think... I've had a couple of friends say it's it's not even so much that it exists, it's how she's responding to um, her record and not sort of acknowledging, you know, so it's, it's kind of ironic, in some ways she's responding like Biden, she's not really being forthcoming about it and sort of like, I made a mistake and move on and then it doesn't become an issue um, and then it, it, it's a non-issue because she's taken the wind out of their sails but it she actually seemed, um, it didn't, seem to respond that strongly um, when in this, and, and she, I don't think she performed as well in this debate as a result. Oh yeah, that's clear. Again, not trying to sound uh, biased or, or whatever because I am a Kamala Harris fan, but she was the attorney general of the largest state in the United States that has 40 million people in it and she kept 1,500 people in jail for marijuana usage. That doesn't sound like a big deal to me. She kept somebody in. She kept a murderer in jail and didn't give the evidence to the judge because we don't know what that guy did. Was he a pedophile? Was he a rapist? Was he a mass murderer? We don't know any of the details of around that particular case for her to bring that up. So it's easy. Like I said, like I said earlier in the conversation, I'm tired of the Democrats going back 10 and 20 and 30 <laughs> years to find dirt on your opponent when we have a scumbag in the White House <laughs> right now yeah. who's doing things today. Yeah. Who cares what Kamala Harris did 20 years ago when she was the attorney when she was the attorney general? She did she did what what her employer told her to do and her employer was the governor of the state. He he's the one that gave her the directed the direction on what he wanted to do in his administration. Uh, so again, uh, and as far as Tulsi is concerned, 
she's a one trick pony. I've been listening to her for years. And she starts off every sentence by, well, my brothers and sisters in, in, in the Middle East, uh, my brothers and sisters in the military. And I just want to say to my brother, shut up. It's, I mean, like, go back to Hawaii. You're not going to win. Go back to what are you drunk? Go back to Hawaii. You're not going to win. You go and, and go down. Because, like, you know, again, she's all aloha. And like, when she, like, just say hello. You, <laughs> just, she takes it too far. She's a one trick pony. All she talks about is the military and trying to end wars and unjust wars, blah, blah, blah. She took an opportunity to go after Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris didn't deserve that. Get, get out of here. But did a terrible job of defending her. If Kamala Harris defended herself as well as you do, David Seaton. But how could, she, how could she say, well, I didn't, she, she wasn't going to be able to say, well, I kept that evidence because that guy killed, uh, murdered this man's three daughters in the middle of the, she can't go into that granular detail on a debate stage where she's got 30 seconds to respond. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, a couple things. Um, we can't talk about these Democratic candidates as if they're the nominee. This is a primary. And that's what this time is for, to talk about old issues, talk about how you've learned from that issue, how you've evolved, how you've grown, and why that issue won't be a problem in the future. That's what this time is for. So I'm all everything that you said, I'm all for it if she becomes the nominee. Mm-hmm. Then it's time to get in line and, and, and get on board. But right now... This is a time to dissect. This is a time to parse, and this is a time to figure it out. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what I said. We need to for. contrast these. They, they need to contrast them. But Biden Harris, twenty twenty. <laughs> no, no, so the only way you can contrast is by doing this deep dive and and yeah. atiba you hit it on the head this is the primary this is the role that is actually a really talking about educating folks i think people people's understanding of the electoral process um is not as strong as it could be because we don't have civics education okay people's engagement in primaries is not is what it needs to be i mean think about we had the a really a historic election here in Chicago to elect a new mayor and <laughs> without an incumbent, like that, and then whatever, not even 30% showed up. I mean, like, that's the kind of stuff that, that really um, is disheartening. Because I thought, like, oh, people are sort of engaged. They're going to realize, like, oh, this is a major moment, and, and but people don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, in whatever, 46% of people st- stayed home in 2016. I am really, again, concerned about what's going to happen in 2020. A, you know, a combination of the Democrats, what operation that the nominee has, what the DNC builds, and what isn't sort of uh, hasn't been dismantled by you know voter ID and voter suppression. So it's a lot. There's a lot to um, to account for. And I will tell you, hearing from uh, organizations that are nonpartisan and do some of that sort of, uh, you know, voter registration and voter education, they're not well funded because all that money is being split by between whatever 25 or whatever odd candidates. And it's not going to organizations like that. So somebody needs to fund those organizations. Somebody needs to keep the eye on the prize. All right, very good. Dennis is motioning me, telling me we have broken all records on this particular one. I had a whole bunch of other uh, clips I wanted to play, but I think we can hold off on them. Uh, And uh, before we take a break, uh, we take the uh, break off the show, uh, David and Atiba and Samita, why don't you tell folks something uh, they want to listen to your podcast or they want to get in touch with you or anything like give you out your information that you want people to know about. Yeah, absolutely. Again, 
the name of the show is called Humanity and the Headlines. We have scores of shows available on YouTube and just Google Humanity and the Headlines. All those shows will come up. We have phenomenal guests. Um, so all the big names, we're, we're, we're lucky enough to get them a lot of times. We've had, uh, who have we had on the show? Black Eagle. Yeah, we've had Joe Madison on the show. We've had, um, uh, what's his name from CNN? Keith Boykin. Keith Boykin. Oh. He's been, yeah, he's David been on the Schuster. show. Uh, yeah, David Schuster's been on the show. Uh, Jamal Simmons has been on the show. So we, we pride ourselves on bring, being able to bring the best talent, the most qualified to talk uh, on matters of race. What was her name? Jane... I always say good all, but that's the ape. That's yeah, the, it's the ape lady. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, why? Well, you her? <laughs> I can't recall her name. I'm so sorry. But you name it. I mean, they, they've been on the show. And even the Chicago Sun-Times own Evan Moore. Has great been, Evan Moore. Yeah, he's been on the show numerous times. Even Evan We have matters of, of sports and race. He's one of the first people yeah. that we call. So, Stuff. yeah, absolutely. You can, again, you can Google any of that stuff. And we're, we're right there. We got scores of material. You'll love it. That's correct. <laughs> My name is David Seaton, co-host of Humanity in the Headlines. You can follow me on Twitter at David A. Seaton. That's S as in Sam, E-A-T-O-N, at Twitter. Uh, and I'm always on there posting something about the most controversial thing of the day or retweeting something stupid that uh, Trump uh, posted that day. It, that usually takes up my morning, and by the time I, I leave and have breakfast, I'm already on 10 for the day. <laughs> so, uh, But I love to have those conversations. Uh, hit me up on Twitter, and uh, let's talk. Uh, so I'm working on a new podcast, but uh, ooh, uh, you can find me on Facebook, um, uh, facebook.com slash Samina F, as in Frank. It's not Frank. Uh, Mustafa is my Facebook page, and Samina Mustafa on Twitter. And uh, I'm doing a couple of events. One of them is the 40th anniversary of Women and Children's First, the bookstore up in uh, Edgewater, Feminist mm -hmm. Bookstore. Um, I'm going to be uh, kicking off their uh, 40th anniversary block party on the 24th of this month. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, great bookstore right there on Clark Street in Edgewater. Uh, anyway, thank you so much, Samina, David, and Atiba. I really appreciate it. Dr. D, you did a great job. Take care, everybody. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.